And as my head began to clear, and as I began to think again, I began to complicate things incredibly. And being a very bright, you know, highly driven, exquisitely sensitive uh, person, uh, my mind uh, continued to drive me totally crazy as I attempted to uh, move from a uh, evangelistic atheist to some sort of person uh, seeking uh, a power uh, greater than themselves. The person who's going to speak uh, to us this morning is, as the speaker said last night, uh, one of my early Eskimos. Uh, when I arrived in Phoenix in 1974 and 75, uh, I met a man who, as I began to hear him speak, uh, began in his speaking to introduce me to a God who understood me. Whether I understood him or not was unimportant. And at that po early point in time, he gave me a little booklet. This is back in 74. He gave me a small book, which I included in my morning uh, reading. And every day, to this day, I start, one of the things I do to start my day is read that book. It's a great pleasure to introduce Father Gavin. Thank you. Hi, everybody. My name is Gavin. I'm an alcoholic. Also a uh, grateful member of Al-Anon. I like a challenge, so I try to mention that early. Usually, as an AA speaker, if you mention you're a priest, you alienate half the group, and if you admit to being an Al-Anon, you alienate the other half. <laughs> you're probably wondering why I got to Al-Anon or how my wife's still drinking. No, that's not true. <laughs> I was sober about ten years, and my boss, I happen to be a Franciscan priest, and, and our bosses are called provincials. And uh, my provincial was so happy that I was sober and not getting in trouble and walking around loose that uh, he rounded up all the old chronic alcoholic clergy that he could find and stationed them with me. <laughs> and I was supposed to sober him up. And I'm here to report that in spite of my best efforts, getting up early, praying, meditating with them, telling them everything I knew about alcoholism and recovery, not one of them got sober. <laughs> time goes on, we'll try to figure out what that was about. <laughs> I guess there was some partial success with Teddy. I'm, I'm not sure. I used to have the impression that you either had to be, uh, to be wet or dry. Uh, Teddy was moist. <laughs> he couldn't get drunk. He couldn't get sober. He's one of the most pathetic people I ever met. But it drove me right into Al-Anon. I told those people everything I knew. Cared so much about him. Tried to help... <laughs> ways beyond any way that any of us should help. And I'm grateful for Al-Anon. I won't talk about Al-Anon a whole lot this morning. Well, maybe I will for a while. Get that part out of the way. I get something for those of you who are not members of Al-Anon. I want to, know, want to let you know if you're in this room, you qualify. And I get something. I've been sober this September 3rd. It'll be 18 years. <laughs> hope he knows who he's whistling for there. Yeah. thanks to God and the generosity of people like you but in that period of time I've found that 
when I got to Eleanor, and I was so screwed up when I got to Eleanor, I think it was nine or ten years ago, I don't know the date on that one, don't know the year. I found something in Eleanor that I haven't found in it. It's kind of like the frosting on the cake. Of course, if I don't make Alcoholics Anonymous my primary program, I wind up being a drunk Al-Anon, and that ruins the whole thing. When I first, and this has something to do with denial, when I first went to Al-Anon, being sober nine or ten years, having run an alcohol and drug abuse program for a while, having sent many people to Al-Anon, when I discovered that I belonged there and I went to my first Al-Anon meeting, I was so frightened. I had such a big lump in my throat I shook so badly that I couldn't talk. Didn't mind being an alcoholic, but I didn't want to be one of them. It's amazing how this denial and delusion and prejudice works. So that's why I like to spend a little more time than usual talking about uh, Al-Anon, because I'm grateful to be there. I'm very grateful to be there. I've found, for those of you that aren't Al-Anon, I'll tell you a couple of things about it that you probably wouldn't know, that we have a, a salute in Al-Anon, that's well known. Members can recognize each other. It goes like this. <laughs> also, uh, also a handshake. <laughs> I'm not sure why it's easier to make fun of, of Al-Anons than it is alcoholics, but uh, but it seems to be true. I'll tell you my two favorite Al-Anon stories. I went to the International Convention. Alcoholics Anonymous has those every five years. The first one I went to was in Denver, and uh, that was the biggest convention they'd ever had up until that time, which seems to be the history of those conventions. The world's largest coffee pot, and when they designed the building, they did not design the plumbing to handle the world's largest coffee pot. <laughs> so as a result of that, the lines at the men's and the women's room were extremely long, sometimes as long as an hour. And I stayed in the Denver area for about a week after that. And uh, in the middle of an AA meeting, a woman just burst out hysterically laughing. And, and she embarrassed herself that she had done that. And she said, well, I really have to tell you what happened. She says, remember the, remember the big convention and, and the long lines at the restroom? She says, I waited about 40 minutes in one of those lines. And it weaved around. And I finally got into the room. And, and just as I walked in there, some, some woman said, oh, this smells. This is, oh, what an odor. This is terrible. And another woman said, oh, honey, you've seen worse than this. She says, oh, no, no, I'm an Al-Anon. <laughs> Other favorite story has to do with a retired lieutenant colonel in the army who is a member of Al-Anon that uh, in desperation came and uh, <laughs> being a typical military man, he, uh, he fulfilled his vow that he'd made to a friend to attend six meetings. He was not going to go to any more than that, but something happened on the sixth one. And he suddenly realized that his life was much better than it had been before going to those meetings, and he's been going ever since. But he was a literalist. And... Uh, uh, he took everything in terms of logical, what was like, he used to get up in the morning and cut a set of orders for his wife. That was the uh, kind of way that he operated. And she was uh, an alcoholic of the uh, very public and uncontrollable type. And one evening she came home late, drunk, parked the car in the driveway and, and didn't come into the house. And he walked out and found her sprawled out on the lawn. And... Uh, he wanted to pick her up and take her in the house and put her in bed, but he remembered hearing somewhere in Al-Anon that, that you're really getting well when you can step over them. <laughs> so he stepped over and went back to bed. But, but he worried because in the Phoenix area, uh, much of the city is uh, 
many of the lawns are, are watered by irrigation. So this little irrigation ditch coming down the, the alley. And once a week or so, you, you get the water. And if you open the little floodgate into your yard, it, it floods the lawn. And uh, he realized that about 3 o'clock that morning, he was supposed to get water. And he was so worried about his wife didn't want her to drown, so he went out there in the lawn and, and put a rock under her head so she wouldn't drown. <laughs> I do think I know why it's easier to make fun of Al-Anons and alcoholics. I have a dear friend in AA named John. John was a successful advertising executive on Madison Avenue. And before he found out that he was an alcoholic and that that was his main problem, he went to a very uh, noted psychiatrist, $90 an hour variety, twice a week for three and a half years. It's a lot of money. And to hear John tell it, we get into that sympathy of, gee, what a waste. It's too bad you didn't find out you're an alcoholic. And... Uh, you wouldn't have wasted all that time. John says, don't worry about that. I don't regret spending any one of those dollars. It was all worth it for one thing. Because the, the psychiatrist I went to was a very non-directive type. And uh, all he ever did was uh, agree with me and, and nod and say, mm-hmm, and repeat whatever I had said back to him. And, and it was all worth it because one day I went rushing into his office and said, Doc, I finally see what's wrong with me. We've been talking about symptoms. I've found the underlying cause. I know what's wrong with me, and I can't wait to tell you about it. And the doctor kind of set up a little straighter than usual and said, what's, what's the underlying problem, John? John says, I discovered I'm sensitive. So it's the only time that that psychiatrist made a direct statement. He said he got, not only made a statement, he got up out of the chair, walked around the desk, put his hand on John's shoulders and said, John, John, great artists are sensitive, sculptors, musicians. You're just touchy. <laughs> and I'm touchy too because I'm an alcoholic. And I think it goes with that territory. Thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know, I was, for those of you who are new, and we have a whole lot of new people here, drinking patterns differ widely. So if you hear any of us up here speaking and our drinking pattern does not parallel yours, don't be too sure you're not an alcoholic or that you don't belong. Keep coming back and someday I think you'll find someone to tell your story for you. I know that's happened to me on many different occasions. The unusual things about my drinking were... Even till the very end, I didn't know I was an alcoholic. And apparently, a lot of other people didn't know I was an alcoholic either. The talk yesterday morning about falling uphill or falling upstairs made a lot of sense to me. Because I kept functioning well and apparently better in the eyes of other people on the job. And that not only fed the denial and helped blind me from the nature of my real problem, which was excessive alcoholic drinking, but it made me think I was really doing all right. <laughs> Toward the end of the drinking, uh, an interesting thing happened that fed the denial. There were nine of us in the class that was ordained the year I was ordained, and they asked all of us if we'd like to, to continue on going to school and get another degree or two. Every one of my classmates opted to do that except myself, and I said, no thanks, I'll do that later. I'd like a little life experience first. <laughs> a little realizing that that's... All I was going to get, and in excess, but I'm grateful because it got me here. So I was real proud when I got my picture in the education section of Time magazine, because it was the other guys in the class that went for the degrees, and I made the education section of Time. Last night, Bobby talked about his Eskimos, 
those beautiful people that are sent into our life that don't appear to make any sense, or we don't know where they came from, but they give us what we need when we most need it, and they're usually the most unlikely source. That's what began to happen to me at that time. Because when I knew, when I found my picture and a write-up about me in time, I knew I didn't deserve it. I knew other people did, and that I was the front man, the focal point. And it was a great deal of pain and a great deal of drinking that was involved covering up that particular embarrassment. The coincidence, or the prophetic part of it, the, the main burden of the piece had to do with the Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty, and uh, I'd done some things in that area. And underneath the picture was the caption, Father Gavin on Skid Row. And here I am talking to some poor unfortunate. <laughs> And what the photographer didn't know when he took the picture is that I was drunk. And what the photographer and I didn't know is that later I'd meet that same poor unfortunate in AA, and he'd tell me exactly what I needed to hear on a day when I didn't want to hear it. And in one of those beautiful ways that happens so frequently in program, our life has changed, and in the most unexpected kind of way. We had a gal in our home group, I guess she was about 35, hard-charging business executive uh, type lady, very quick. And uh, um, sometimes you're your own Eskimo. Uh, this gal had had no religious background, no spiritual background whatsoever. She'd never been in a church, never knew anyone that had. So she thought, because she found AA and found there everything she'd always been looking for, that those of us who were connected with things like that kind of had a head start. And she was a pest, because she'd ask us all kinds of embarrassing questions that other people wouldn't think of. And one night after meeting of our home group, I was in the kitchen washing ashtrays, and she came up and tapped me on the shoulder. She said, Gavin, if you had to describe God in one word, what would it be? Well, I was busy with the ashtrays. That took my full attention at that time. And if I'd had time to think, I probably would have said loving or compassionate or forgiving or merciful. Or if I had more time to think, I'd probably say omnipotent or something like that. I didn't have time. I said, sneaky. <laughs> and then this wave of guilt hit me. Sneaky. That sounds terrible. But I'm here to tell you today that if I had to describe God in one word, I'd say sneaky. And I say that not irreverently, but with a great deal of respect and a great deal of affection. Because God knows the God of my experience that I met in Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me what I have learned so far in ways that are only described accurately as bizarre. Let me tell you how I got here. Toward the end of the drinking, oh, I started to say the drinking patterns differ. Mine was differ, differing in this sense. Not only did I not know I was an alcoholic, no one else knew that, no one else had accused me of it, no one ever brought that to my attention. I'm functioning well on the job. However, I do have a big problem. And my problem was, at that time, as I perceived it, that I was insane. I thought I was crazy. And the reason I thought I was crazy is because I kept doing things I didn't want to do. And not only did I keep doing things I didn't want to do, I kept getting better at them. Or worse, or however you want to say that. And that was absolute terror. So I literally sobered up 
with the agenda of sobering up enough to find out what kind of a nut I was. That's a whole other story. But because we are high hard on psychiatry at times, I would like to say that the man I went to for help, for my craziness, fired me after four sessions and told me that he could not even diagnose me until I quit drinking. And please go somewhere else to find out how to quit drinking, because I don't know anything about that. Now, I think that's real professionalism, and I'm deeply indebted to that man for firing me as a crazy client. After I got sober, I found out I'm not any crazier than the rest of you. In fact, I kind of enjoy it. I think religion and psychiatry both were sold sanity anyway. There's a, there's a lot of uh, flakiness and mischief in program, and I, I hope we always have that. Anyway, in the middle of all this desperation that was going on, uh, I uh, started. I have a weakness for uh, pop psychology and how to do it books. And I think that's why they put them near the cash registers in the bookstores, probably because other people have a weakness for them, too. And I decided that to relieve my pain, I would go interview <laughs> some of these people who'd written some of these books that I thought so much of. And I chased six of those authors down. And I'm here to tell you, just in case you're tempted to do that, my experience with six of the authors is the books are a lot better and make more sense than the folks that wrote them. <laughs> Out of the six, there's one notable exception to that, but uh, I'm not going to tell you who the people were because you all know the books, and the books help a lot of people. What I really did was find out that those people were human, too. I have a friend who likes to shake up members of the program, and one of his favorite comments is, alcoholism is simply a metaphor for the human condition. Gee, I'd like it to be a little more special than that, but... Uh, just thought I'd pass that along so you could think about that one for a little while. Anyway, I was completely disillusioned when one morning I was reading the paper and I found out that Ringling Brothers was coming to town. And I had this marvelous idea. I said, that's it. I'll go talk to the circus folks. They haven't been to college and screwed their head up. They haven't read all the pop psychology books. They've just lived life. I bet they've had marvelous experiences and, and gathered a great deal of wisdom from that. And, and you know that's actually true. So I, I got a press pass, uh, borrowed a cassette recorder from a studio quality recorder from the television station that I've had a connection with for a number of years, and uh, went to the circus. <laughs> I'm not too sure what the reasons were that I gave at that time. Uh, I got to a lot of places and did a lot of things that I would never do sober or never have the courage to do. But I could drink enough to walk in anywhere and tell any kind of a story and uh, be right in the middle of all kinds of things in places where I didn't really belong or fit in. It was a lot of fun. Can you imagine a drunk with a press pass at the circus for uh, a week? I think they were in town for a week that year. <laughs> had a lot of fun. And I only have one of the tapes left, but on that particular tape, I'm always telling the performers that I'm talking to that I deal with a youth group. And, and you know how screwed up teenagers are today, and everybody agrees with that. And I said, if you've learned something worthwhile in your life, and your experience has taught you something that you think is really valuable that you didn't know or couldn't find out any other way, and you'd like to pass that along to these kids, what is it? And we ask that question to people. And it's not a bad question to ask this group either. Everyone stops and they think for a while. And I haven't met a person yet that I've asked that to that didn't come up with an answer and share wonderful insights. 
You see, at the time, though, I didn't know that I was the screwed-up teenager I was looking for the help for. That's really what was going on with all that um, business at the circus. Some of the people, that was before they had two units, a red unit and a blue unit. It was the second to the last year before they, they split up. They had just one Ringling Brothers circus. And some of the people were retiring. Some of the greats, like Merle Evans, the band leader who'd written great circus music for years, that still heard. And he promised to give me an interview. And it was the last night of the circus, and they're packing up to go to L.A. And I hadn't talked to him yet. So I drove down to the railroad track, and I was going to talk to Merle and some of the other people. And I parked my car in a vacant lot with some weeds growing in it. I didn't bother to notice that the weeds were growing out of an irrigation ditch, and I parked my car in the ditch. The front two wheels are down in this hole. The back two wheels are up in the air, spinning around. And I knew I couldn't get out of there by myself. I was too embarrassed to call a friend, and I was too cheap to call a wrecker. <laughs> but I'd seen a lot of forklifts and tractors and trucks and things like that with the circus, and by this time all the circus people knew me. My alcoholism made sure of that. So I knew I could get one of them to pull me out. So I ran up to one of them as best I could run and said, my car's in a ditch. Now that's a clue right there. Uh, somehow I created the impression I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> Something that goes with the territory called alcoholism is shifting blame. I said, here's $10 if you can get me out. I said, nothing to it. <laughs> he didn't get a tractor. He didn't get a forklift. They offloaded an elephant from the train, put a work harness on her, and pulled my car out of the ditch in front of what is now a very large crowd. <laughs> now, you have to remember, at this time, I don't know I'm an alcoholic. I think I'm crazy, and I'm searching for the secret of life. And I can still very vividly see a small child yanking on its parents' clothing, saying, Hey, Mom, look at, look at the elephant pull the drunk's car out of the ditch. <laughs> the kid had it figured out. <laughs> But at this point, I don't have a clue. You know what I'm thinking? How dare parents have a young child like that out at this time of night? <laughs> that goes with alcoholism, too. There's this disaster going on right in front of us, or we're right in the middle of it, and, and we're way over here somewhere. <laughs> writing some other scenario. Well, the elephant pulled my car out of the ditch. And in case you're wondering if this happened, I've wondered, too. <laughs> but I have since run across several witnesses that remember it the same way that I did. The elephant pulled my car out of the ditch. The fellow who ran the elephants in those years, Hugo Schmidt, said, Now you just, uh, I don't want your money. You just drive me back up to the Coliseum on the way home, and, and you go home and take care of yourself. See, he had it figured out, too. But I still didn't know. And here's what happened that night. It may sound a little overdramatic, but it's the truth, and it's what happened. I sat down at the kitchen table and, and drank a lot of scotch out of a coffee cup. That, that's another clue. Social drinkers don't use coffee cups to, to drink alcohol. And I was looking for oblivion because that was such an embarrassing evening. And I was mortified and full of all kinds of terrible feelings. And I was looking for the escape that alcohol always gave me. And clinically or objectively, I don't know what happened that night, but I know how I remember it. It was stark, raving terror. Because that night, the alcohol had a different effect. 
It was as if the more I drank, the soberer I got. And it was terror. I was looking for escape. I wanted oblivion. I needed rest and comfort. And instead, I got clarity. And I've been close to death a couple of times in my life, and I've, I've seen things flash in front of me and, and how the history of your life speeds up. I know what that's like. And that happened that night. And I didn't like what I saw. And then here's what I said to myself. I don't know if I said it out loud or not. I probably did. I said, this is impossible. An impossible evening. I couldn't park in a ditch. Not me. That's impossible. An elephant sure as hell didn't pull me out. I know that that had never happened to a nice, normal person like me. And someone with a circus had never turned down money. I knew that hadn't happened either. Now, the very next thought I had was this. And for years in the program, I was dumb enough to walk around saying I had no idea where this thought came from. That's how slow I am. If these impossible things could happen, then you could be an alcoholic. And at that moment, I bought the diagnosis. It's an unusual story, but it's true. That's the way it happened with me. And I think God, the sneaky God of my experience, has all kinds of ways of getting our attention. Perhaps in the Old Testament he sent angels. I, I, I don't know about that today. I, I know at least in one case he sent an elephant. <laughs> in Bobby's case, he sends Eskimos. And thank God for that. It has a lot to do with the anonymity of the program. Because my experience has been that most of the people who have helped me the most did not know they were doing it. They were just sharing their experience, strength, and hope. And on that particular day, something that they said that may have even been very trivial in their life made enormous sense to me. I'd like to jump ahead toward the end uh, for a moment and then come back and fill in the middle a little bit. I ran across a piece of literature, a poem, and I don't know the author. If I ever do, I'll start giving the person credit. We've traced it back to a couple of hundred years anyway, but uh, still don't know who wrote it. And it's one of those pieces of literature that when you hear it, you almost get jealous that you didn't write it. And it's too good to be true. Let me share it with you. I am the place where God shines through, for he and I are one, not two. I need not fret, nor fear, nor plan. He wants me where and as I am. And if I be relaxed and free, he'll carry out his plan through me. When I first heard those words, I wanted to rewrite them, and I've been unable to do it. And it's embarrassing that the place where God shines through is where you are, and who you are is how he speaks. But that's been my experience. And my experience has been that I have become wise in AA. Not so much in regard to my own affairs, but with other people. And I'm not as embarrassed as usual to say that because I find that you're all very, very wise, too. You always say the profound, simple thing that I don't know when I need to know it. I've been out of the country for three weeks, and I was talking to a friend in Phoenix on the phone last night. He said, can't wait for you to get back. Scottsdale's moved their Al-Anon club. 
And uh, I'd heard about that before I left. I knew that was going to happen. And they really did it up big, real swanky, enormous club right next to the Chamber of Commerce on the Civic Plaza Square in downtown Scottsdale. I'm going to love it when I get back. <laughs> but there's another club in town. And it's in downtown Phoenix, and for a long time my home group was there, and uh, usually ladies don't go there alone, particularly at night. It's in a rough neighborhood, a lot of rough people. And if I really hurt, do you know which club I go to? <laughs> That's right, I go to the Arid Club in downtown Phoenix. Someone asked me to describe that group one day, and I, I heard my mouth say this bit of wisdom. That's the place where all the wrong people show up and say all the right things. <laughs> and that's exactly what happens. And you and I have access to that. No matter where we go, it's available to us if we reach out and, and look for it. So I am gung-ho about AA. Also gung-ho about sponsorship. Uh, my first sponsor was a very wise man. He happened to be a TV salesman and he didn't go to church. If I had to list the five most spiritual people I've ever known in my life, Les would be on the list. He was highly suspicious of anyone who went to church. He was a great sponsor for me. Couldn't play any church games with him. I'd like to pass a little bit of his wisdom along. One of the things that he told me early on was uh, we'd been to a meeting together, and then after the meeting for about a half hour, and then in a coffee shop for another 10 or 20 minutes, and then we were alone. And he, he said, Gavin, do you realize how often you say you're sorry? And I said, uh, no, I don't think I do that. Well, if I do, I'm sorry. <laughs> I said, gotcha. And then he listed back to me in the time we'd been together that evening, probably about two hours total, 18 times that I had begun a sentence with the words, I am sorry. And I was caught because I remembered those times. My memory works that well now. And I was totally embarrassed. He looked me right in the eye and, and just kept coming. He said, Gavin, you're the sorriest person I've ever met. <laughs> and I'm going to give you some advice. Well, I always listened when he gave advice because it wasn't very often, but whenever he did, it never made sense, but it always worked. <laughs> and I'd like to pass this piece of advice along to you. He said, whenever you're tempted or you find yourself wanting to say that you're sorry, shut up. And ask yourself this question. Have I done anything wrong? Am I wrong? And if the answer to that question is no, don't say you're sorry. Don't say anything. And if the answer to that question is yes, I have done something wrong, don't say you're sorry. Say, I'm wrong. Well, I struggled with that, and I've, I've become very successful with it, thank God. And the revelation in that bit of wisdom was that I didn't have to say I was wrong nearly as, thought as, as often as I thought I had to. See, if it rained today, I would apologize for that and tell you I was sorry. Today I know that's not my department. I think all alcoholics are sorry, but I'm not as sorry as I used to be. I'm more wrong. See, there's a long version of my story. It takes several years to tell. There's a short version. I'll give you the short version real quick. short version goes like this. I used to drink and do stupid things. And now I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I don't drink and do stupid things. <laughs> See, but now I know they're stupid when I do them. That's growth. You see, until I got here, I was never wrong. I always had an excuse. I always had a way to put the blame somewhere else. 
And one of the great gifts of being sober and Alcoholics Anonymous is the gift of being able to be wrong, be able to make a mistake and say it, and not have to get suicidal about it, <laughs> to be able to get on with life. So I thank Les for that advice about sorry. He also said something else I'd like to share with this group. He, he claimed for a long time that, that all alcoholics crave excitement. And that sounded like too much of a total statement to me, so I kept looking for an exception, someone who was dull and boring and alcoholic. And I finally found one, a wonderful lady who lived in Sun City, uh, the largest retirement community in the world. By the way, that's a great lab for studying alcoholism. <laughs> it's also a great place to go to AA. They've got enthusiasm. You know, they've got an enormous amount of time on their hands. They meet you at the door. They knock each other down trying to greet you. And they get your name and phone number. If you don't show up for a couple of meetings, there's a committee that comes and visits. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just wonderful the way they reach out and the amount of love that's expressed in those groups. Anyway, I, I label this gal just really kind of out of it and really dull. And I mentioned that to Les. And uh, <laughs> I said, I think I found an exception to your rule about alcoholics craving excitement. He said, oh, who's that? And I mentioned her name. And he said... Why don't you ask her where her income comes from? I did. Found out she was a successful, highly paid pornographer. <laughs> so I guess Les was right. Les always seemed to be right. And the two sponsors that I've had since then, each one being no longer my sponsor because of death, uh, have a wonderful gift. They get wise when I need it. They're able to say what I need to hear when I don't want to hear it in a way that I can hear it. And they have the courage to say that. And like God, they're sneaky. And they get my attention in all kinds of wonderful ways. <laughs> when the drinking was at its worst, I was working at Travis Air Force Base. Uh, and that was just a weekend kind of thing, confessions and Sunday... Uh, masses, and the Vietnam really got cooking and took off, and they were flying all the wounded into uh, Travis, and they hired me full-time. I shouldn't have got the job, but I wound up with it. So from August 68 to August 69, I was the official greeter for this country, welcoming the wounded coming back home, because they flew all the wounded, some of you were part of that, I'm sure, into Travis. We had them there for a day, usually, unless they were too beat up or too sick, and we'd hang on to them. But getting them to a military hospital near their family was part of their recovery. So it was a staging area. And my job was to greet those troops and to say, welcome back. Thanks for what you did for your country. And it was what educators would call one of those teachable moments. Because <laughs> we were getting guys that were shot at and wounded a day or two before I saw them. All you have to do is get shot at and your priorities do an automatic sort. <laughs> and no matter how wise you are or how immature, all of a sudden you know what's important and what isn't. And I got to talk to these guys. Besides that, the Red Cross said, here's a carton of cigarettes, here's a telephone, talk to anybody you want for ten minutes. A, a dozen times that year I saw guys get off the plane and kiss the, the asphalt on the flight line. They're home, they're safe, nobody's shooting at them. They're not near all that crummy, terrible stuff that never really got in the papers the way a lot of the civilians were abused. Landmines being strapped to the backs of little children and then told to go visit those soldiers and then detonated remotely. Those are the things that really bothered the troops. But I want to tell you a couple of experiences about that, because it has to do with spirituality and it has to do with a, a wonderful individual that I met. Uh, there were pretty nurses around, too. The, the troops approved of that. And after they'd settled into all that, then I got to walk in. 
And one of the great things about that job was I got to them before the paperwork showed up. So part of my job was to ask their religion so that if I was dealing with a Methodist, I was to try to help him to be a better Methodist if I could. If I got in over my head with Methodist things to get a Methodist chaplain. Uh, and I hate to admit this, but I grew up in a ghetto, a Catholic ghetto, kind of brainwashed in that uh, way of looking at things. Uh, I like being a priest today. I like being a Catholic. It isn't easy either. Uh, but it's, uh, we've come a long ways and things are changing. And I'm not here to talk about that today. But, but I, I need to talk about it a little bit because it relates to guilt and so does alcoholism. I was in a ward with six guys, and there was one that I liked before I even talked to him, Negro sergeant in the Marine Corps. Been machine gunned across the chest, and besides all the damage to the chest, it had broken his arm very badly, which was in a, a loose cast. A lot of work still had to be done. And the nurse was removing the dressing on his chest and pouring saline solution on it and being very gentle about taking that dressing off so it didn't hurt. And he's giving her hell. I said, would you hurry up and take that thing off? Don't baby me. And she took him serious. She just ripped the whole thing all at once and did what you just did. And that's what the rest of us in that room did. And you can see most of his ribs where the bullet creases had taken the flesh away. And he vaulted out of bed, looked in the mirror, kind of laughed, said, oh, that isn't so bad, hopped back in bed. I liked the guy right away. And when I got to him and I got to use my line, I'm Father Gavin, welcome home, thanks for what you've done. What's your religion? You know what he said? The Marine Corps. <laughs> And the beauty of that experience was it was true. He, is, he, he no sooner had said that than he thought he had offended me. And he said, Father, I, I don't mean to be irreverent, but, but I'd look out of place in church. I grew up on the streets of New York, and the only thing I know how to do is fight. And uh, uh, can you see me singing a hymn or folding my hands? And I couldn't. He said, but I believe in God. And then he told me about God. It was the first personal experience I had had of a non-church person who was deeply spiritual. And the wonderful thing happened. He got outranked and bumped the next day. He, there weren't enough places on the plane, so he stayed. I got to see him two days. Then the third day, they had engine trouble on the plane. I got to see him a third day, twice a day. That man had a profound effect on my life, profound spiritual effect. I was so moved by that. And yet when I got to AA, I found out that everyone in Alcoholics Anonymous, everyone in Al-Anon, is capable of that same kind of gift-giving in a spiritual way. And again, more often than not, it's done anonymously or unknowingly. Let me back up to my sponsor. The, this is my favorite story. My sponsor waited. He knew this story when I sobered up, and he waited to tell it to me until I could hear it. I was sober about a year and totally fouled up. I was not drinking. But I was crazier than a loon. And I called him hysterically from a phone booth in the middle of the day. And I said, for God's sake, Les, tell me what's wrong with me. He says, okay, come on down to the house tonight. I'll tell you what's wrong with you. Went down to the house that night and I pled with him. I said, tell me what's wrong with me. He said, I'll tell you. Problem with you is you believe too much. Well, I was devastated. You see, because when I was at Travis and being a chaplain, I had a lot of people ask me, do you really think they're atheists in foxholes? I always answered that question. I gave different answers, though, depending on how much I had to drink that day. But partway through the Travis experience, the Air Force is congratulating me on my job performance, and I'm flying apart inside, and I'm going crazy. And I realized, even though I didn't have the program language to express it that I'll use now, what I needed was a new understanding of a higher power, a new God, 
new perception. So I didn't know how to do that. What I did, I'd get dressed like this so I don't look like a priest. I'd sneak off base on Sunday mornings after I'd said Mass, going to different Protestant churches. And I never felt more comfortable there than anywhere else. And that's because I took my alcoholism with me. I know that today and you know that. I brought that discomfort, that disease with me. At that time, I didn't know I was an alcoholic. I thought I suffered from excessive guilt. That was my diagnosis. And my cure for that was to find a different understanding of a higher power. Now, if you're shopping around in Protestant churches while being paid by the government to be a Catholic chaplain, it doesn't help the guilt much. <laughs> I was sober five or six years, and I heard someone give a lecture on alcoholism, and they listed it as one of the symptoms excessive guilt. I want to talk about guilt a little bit, but first let me finish the story about believing. Because what happened, and I'm not real proud of this, but it's the truth, in that disillusionment and not being able to find a spirituality that made more sense to me or spoke to my needs, one day when someone said, do you really think they're atheists in foxholes? I gave the answer, whatever it was that day. And then I thought, that's it. That's what I ought to be as an atheist. If I could just get rid of God, then I could do what I wanted to do without feeling guilty about it. And that had great appeal, because I had a whole list of things I wanted to do that I had got around to, that my belief in God kept me from doing. So I dedicated myself to being an atheist. This is a lesson in alcoholism. I prayed that I would be a good atheist. <laughs> From the bottom of my heart, I asked God to help me do this right. <laughs> now, I like to tell that because it's true, but for another reason. When we're in a lot of pain with our drinking or with our loved ones drinking, we don't hook things up very well. We just look at the immediate pain in front of us. I wanted to become an atheist. Why? So I could diminish or get rid of the guilt. Why? So I could be a better chaplain. For who? Or why? It doesn't make any sense when you put it together. But when I hurt bad enough, I can't put anything together. And that applies to sobriety today. When I hurt bad enough, I can't hook it up. Or if I do, I hook, or hook it up backwards. And that's why I am so grateful for the gift of you people. Because I've let enough of you in my life close enough so that you can hook it up for me when I hurt. And sometimes I hurt so bad I don't even know I hurt yet. I have a couple of close friends who on more than one occasion said, Gavin, you're really screwed up. And it was news. I did not know that. But I've had enough faith in their experience to realize that, oh, I, I'm screwed up. I guess I am. And sure enough. <laughs> it's kind of like a step one that we get to practice on, on our attitudes as we go along. The favorite story was this. You see, when, when Les said the problem with you is you believe too much, he couldn't have said anything that would have hurt more because he knew my attempt at atheism and, and he knew how sensitive I was to that and how badly I'd screwed that up. <laughs> Thank God. But... Nothing could hurt more. And he said, I know you don't understand. Let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story about a circus. Here's the wisdom of sponsors. See, he knew about the elephant. He knew, he knew her name. He said, suppose you go to a circus. And I'd not heard this story yet. And he said, you see an aerialist, a performer, 50 feet up in the air. And as part of his act, he's going to go across that thin steel wire from this side of the arena all the way across here. And, and part of what he does is he pushes a wheelbarrow from that side to this side. And you believe as much as any human being can possibly believe that he won't fall. He's done it for 30 years, two, sometimes three times a day. 
If anybody can do that, he can do that. You believe he can do that. He said, okay, now that's belief. But don't tell me you trust him or have any faith in his ability until you're willing to get up there with him 50 feet in the air and sit quietly in that wheelbarrow while he pushes you across. difference between belief and faith. And you got a lot of belief. You believe in God. You believe in AA. That's all you talk about. We wish you'd shut up. But you don't have any faith. You talk about God, but you don't trust him. And that was my problem that day. <laughs> That's been my problem many days since then. And if I don't do anything else the rest of my life but tell that story, I'll have a very rich life. <laughs> and I've told it enough already so that very often when I really get fouled up and screwed up, and I still do, I have all kinds of tantrums and moods and things that don't even have names. When I'm in the middle of those, very often I'll say to someone that I trust, I don't know what to do. Someone says, get back in the wheelbarrow. <laughs> get back in the wheelbarrow. It is that simple. And if you're new and your faith is very different than mine or very different than anyone else here, or perhaps it's very small or weak, that doesn't matter. Whatever faith it is, and you got faith, otherwise you wouldn't have gotten in this room. You wouldn't be hanging around with this crowd. Whatever that faith is, start trusting it. And don't take my word for it. Check your own experience. Trust what you believe, and the feedback loop will tell you that it works. And there's something there that's bigger than you are and knows more about what you need than all of us put together, and it makes that available to you. And that's my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I love to tell that story about the wheelbarrow, and the punchline is get back in the wheelbarrow. You see, my problem was not really that I didn't believe in God. I just wanted his job. <laughs> Since being here, I've discovered they don't run the hotel right. A couple of things I could do about the sound system. I have an enormous ability to criticize things almost instantly and to see where things are faulty. As we do that, we feed our alcoholism. Someone mentioned something privately to me this week that I thought was enormous wisdom that I'd not heard before, and let me pass that along. He was complaining to his sponsor about the pain in his life. He'd been sober a while and it kept getting more painful. And he asked his sponsor, is it true that there's no pain without gain? Is there any alternative to growth besides hurting? I'm looking for it. And the sponsor said, yeah, there is. He says, tell me, I'll do anything. He says, it's called acceptance. Well, if you're like I am, you'd rather deal with the pain than accept things the way they are. <laughs> and if you want to learn more about that, hang around some of the heavy hitters in Al-Anon. I've been there nine or ten years, but I cannot begin to express it as well as, as half the people who take that program seriously are able to articulate it and to carry that message. I can't say it. I can recognize it, and I can internalize it if I stay close to them. Let me get into an area that has to do with the present. In a month or two, I'll have a sabbatical, a year off. Uh, I've been away from home for about a month, so I... When I get home, I'm anxious to open the mail and see if things have been finalized. I'll probably spend about a month at Hazleton, or a year. And uh, I'm looking forward a great deal to that. When I was back there about four months ago trying to set this thing up, uh, <clears throat> they have a renewal center there, and I do a lot of retreats, and they want to use me that way. And 
uh, kind of do some consulting in that area and also uh, avail me of the opportunity to pick the brains of the people back there and, and just be around a large group of recovering people. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, we've already set it up where I'll have a week off every month to go do something else or just kind of rest up. So it's going to be wonderful. But one of the things that they asked me back there was, is there a particular thing that you want to study? And there was yes. The answer was yes. And I'll tell you in a moment what that thing was. First of all, let me tell you how insidious this disease is. I've been sober 18 years, thank to God, but I feel so naive, and I feel like a beginner, and I feel like I've just got here. And when I hear step two Reddit meetings restore us to sanity, really, I, I, I have no trouble with with admitting that I've been insane. But I think my problem today is not so much that that I'm insane; that I'm retarded. <laughs> you know, I just miss real simple stuff that's right in front of me. Let me show you what I mean. About two years ago, I called my mother long distance. At that time, she was living in Indiana. And I said, Mom, I'm attending a workshop studying family dynamics. And I have some questions about our family I'd like to ask. She says, great, go ahead and ask me. That's my favorite subject. I said, I know, but i got a couple of questions that are painful. Would you mind if I ask those kinds of questions? No, 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 go ahead. So do you think Dad was an alcoholic? Dead silence. And at that point, I thought I had a dead mother in Indiana. <laughs> You know, long-distance murder. <laughs> you see, the reason I'd never asked that question before, there's a great story in our family about my father. He had a lot of physical problems. And as a result of those physical problems, he saw a lot of physicians. And, uh, uh, oh, I want to publicly thank physicians. I, you guys have helped me a whole lot. But one of the most embarrassing things at Travis was they, they had kind of a little emergency team. When things really went crazy or somebody went crazy or was dying, or there was some real trauma going on, this little special team would go in, and the chaplain was part of that. And I did great in all of those situations, uh, unless there was blood around. And if there was blood around, which was about 95% of the time, I'd come charging into the room and faint, right, in the middle of everything. And it got to be terribly embarrassing. I got to be the base joke for a while. And a surgeon heard about that, and he said, I hear that you're embarrassed because you faint a lot. And I said, yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> I think we're going to have to get somebody else to do that job. He says, no, no, I'll fix it for you. I said, I'll do anything. <laughs> he said, all you have to do is scrub into surgery with me. Well, I wasn't ready to go to that length. <laughs> but I did, and he not only let me observe, he gave me a couple of retractors to hold, so now I'm important and part of this thing. And I don't know if you can do that in civilian hospitals or not, but we did it that year in the Air Force. And I got over my... I still faint if it's my blood. <laughs> But I got over that problem, and I'm really grateful to that man because he did a wonderful thing. Uh, many of you know a physician from my area, Phoenix, Don D., and he tells a beautiful story, which I just illustrated in another way. Uh, Don's son, David, was a, a high school football player, and he was really good, but he got hurt badly. He had a shoulder separation and broke, broken bones connected with it. And Don knew as soon as he saw it happen how much trouble his son was in. And he called up and got just the, the right specialist and got his son to the emergency room. And, and he said that the specialist did something that surprised him because he explained the whole procedure to David before he did it. And he explained the part that Don knew was going to be real difficult and noisy and go crunch and, and have a lot of pain associated with it. And he said, I can't believe that he's telling my son about this ahead of time. And he got everything lined up and he said, okay, now I'm going to pull and this is when I want you to relax and you're really going to help me if you relax. And apparently what David did was relax because when Don woke up, 
because he passed out. David was doing just fine. And Don likes to tell that story because he says, I, I have a wonderful physician friend that, that not only took care of a broken arm, he didn't just treat a broken arm, he treated a young boy. And those of us in the helping professions or the healing arts, I think, have such wonderful opportunities to do more than our particular specialty just by sharing our experience, strength, and hope in our program with people without being pushy about it because that's what people so desperately need in terms of, of healing. Anyway, when my mother did speak again, she came back and she said this. I said, "Is oh, the reason I, I my dad had such respect for this particular physician one day when the physician said if you don't Bill if you don't quit smoking and you don't quit drinking you find another doctor and my dad quit smoking and he quit drinking alcohol at the same time and he never did either one since then and I can't relate to that so that's why I never formulated that question before so when I asked my mother the question do you think that dad's an alcoholic she said of course not but he certainly had a drinking problem <laughs> and then I heard my mother two years ago, described to me what you and I know as alcoholism. And the lump in the throat came back, because now I qualify for ACA, and I'd go into enough meetings as it is. <laughs> and I don't like to think I'm prejudiced. <laughs> I said, do you mind if I ask you another question? He says, no. Remember so-and-so, and I mentioned a neighbor lady. I said, do you think Dad was too friendly with her? Uh-huh. You think it was quiet the first time. <laughs> now, this was a neighbor lady who would best and very quickly be described in a way that all of you could understand if I say she was very sexy. She was a close friend of the family. But the particular incident that I'm going to relate, and in a few moments you'll see why I'm doing all of this, had to do at a time when I was 13 12 or 13. Now, I don't know about you, but when puberty, puberty just didn't happen to me, it attacked. Now, one day I woke up with these hormones rushing through my body, having no idea what to do with them. My parents at the same time are congratulating me on being so studious because I'm at the kitchen table doing my homework by the hour, which I'd never done before. And I did that because the neighbor lady had a garden. Got the picture? And, and on a good day, I'd get to see her go empty the garbage or bring the mail in. Now that's going, and you have to remember the Catholic background that I came up with. A lot of you don't relate to that, but it, it was a black and white world. Everything was either black or white. And when it came to morality, if it had anything to do with sexuality, it was, it was really black. And at this particular time in my life, I found my dad and the neighbor lady acting very inappropriately, fondling each other. And they were caught, and they made a joke out of it. But in retrospect, what I think happened on that particular day, because in my mind, I idolized my dad. This neighbor lady is the best friend of the family. I am taught that the behavior that I'm witnessing, according to the way I heard about it in those days, was highly inappropriate. I still think it was today, based on my father's relationship with my mother and my mother's best friend relationship with the neighbor lady. And yet, I can't, in my mind, look at these people who I idolize and look up to as doing anything inappropriately. And yet, what they're doing is acting shamelessly. Guess who picked up the shame? I felt terrible. 
And if there's been a crusade that I've been on since I've been sober, it's spreading the idea around that there's a difference between guilt and guilt feelings. And I'm convinced that alcoholics are addicted to guilt feelings. We feel guilty about all kinds of things we don't have anything to do with. And isn't it interesting, in some of the research that's done today, we find that uh, many of the chemicals that you and I became addicted to we're addicted to in a stronger way than we thought we were, not only because of the external agent that we ingest being addictive, but it creates or releases addictive drugs within us that we become addicted to. AA, in its folksy way, say alcoholics become addicted to their own juices. They're right on target. And we know today that there are a lot of ways of manufacturing or releasing those internal addictive drugs through non-chemical ways. And isn't it bizarre that the main ways that they have found that you can keep that internal addiction going is through things like chronic anger and fear and self-pity. It makes the whole big book read differently. Those people were wise beyond their own imagination. Now, for a long time I've been on the campaign to let people know that there's a difference between guilt and guilt feelings. If you're really guilty of something, you've broken a law, you've violated a principle, you've gone against some value that you have, and some of us just have residual guilt feelings left over, we don't know what else to do, we feel guilty. Those of you who worry a lot or have anger problems, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about when you suddenly realize you've gone eight hours without being angry, it's time. No, you don't need a reason. You'll find one later, but you get angry first. What I've learned as a result of that conversation with my mother and some other things since then is that a bigger part of the problem, I think, than guilt or guilt feelings, which I got confused, which is in that same category that I had lumped together, is this idea of shame. Bobby referred to it briefly last night. There's some treatment centers in this country that I respect highly that seem to come out with things a little bit ahead of other people that are now beginning to talk, and I don't think I buy this totally, but I have to pay attention to it, that are beginning to talk about alcoholism as being shame-based. And the difference between guilt and shame is this. Guilt has to do with behavior. It's what I did. I broke the law. I ran the stoplight. I stole the money, whatever it is. Shame has to do with who I am. And if shame has a voice, it would be saying things like this, you're, you're really rotten, you're no good. I heard it talking to me this morning. <laughs> Said you should have prepared better. And even if I had prepared better to the point where that voice would be satisfied with that, it would be saying something like this, you're really prepared well, but you'll find a way to screw it up. <laughs> and that shame voice is the voice of alcoholism. What Bobby was talking about last night is our head talking to us. Or if you want to get more technical about it, it's what psychologists and educators today are talking about is negative self-talk. And it goes on all day long. <laughs> I couldn't find my tie this morning. I, I got close to being suicidal. I haven't found it yet. I figured they won't like me. <laughs> you think a grown man ought to be able to keep track of a tie especially in a room where the tie is and no one else has been. <laughs> it's a personal little victory to stand up here without a tie this morning. <laughs> you see, what, what ACA is discovering and what Al-Anon has known but not articulated as, as well as some of the ACA programs are, 
And the reason I'm saying this at an AA talk is simply this. I can't wait for Alcoholics Anonymous to get a hold of some of this data and share their experience, strength, and hope with it and discover the wisdom that comes out of this. Now, you may disagree with me, but I want to plant the seeds to get you thinking about it anyway. Whether alcoholism is shame-based or not, alcoholism creates and fosters a great deal of shame. During the addiction process, apparently part of our brain keeps score and part of it lives blissfully happy, denial, delusion type of uh, uh, mechanism that tells us that we're really doing okay while we're doing terrible things to other people. What ACA is telling us today is that one of the speakers mentioned alcoholism being stuffed feelings. I, I certainly think that that's true, but I'd like to restate it a different way and say that they're borrowed feelings or second-hand feelings. See, when my dad and the neighbor lady were acting shamelessly, I was the one that was dumb enough to pick up the shame. I felt bad. I felt that I had done something wrong. I could never look at that lady in the eyes since then. Now, back to Hazleton. When I was there, they said, what are some of the particular things you'd like to study or learn about back here? I said, shame. I've read what's been written on shame. And uh, it's all very scholarly and technical. And I'd like to write a popular article or help get one written or, or, or somehow motivate someone to produce something for the general public that will capture these thoughts in a way that will be understandable to the average program person so that they can recognize the shame in their life and begin to do something about it. And they said, that's terrific. We'd like someone to do that. <laughs> As I left, I ran by the bookshop and I bought some pamphlets and they got a new one out that I didn't know about. It's called Shame Faced. Facing Shame. And I got on the airplane with my little yellow highlighter and I highlighted everything in yellow that meant a great deal to me. And the next day when I looked at that pamphlet or that booklet, I went into hysterical laughter. I painted the whole thing yellow. <laughs> Unbelievable! And I just want to tell you about it so that you know it exists. Um, I guess as an educator, you've had this happen to you a lot, too, where, where people are always looking for the good book. <laughs> what do you recommend? I think all the really worthwhile books that I've read in my life have one thing in common. They tell you you can't find it in books. <laughs> but if you've had the life experience that someone writes one of these good books, then it can help bring back some of those things to you. So let me mention a couple of other things that I like. On the table outside, the last couple of days, there was uh, some AA pamphlets. There's one that I like better than all the others. It's called A Member's Eye View. I think it's the only pamphlet that was written by an individual, not by a committee. If you haven't read that one, read it. Um, I've had some wonderful things happen to me in sobriety. Uh, just incredible. Well, let me share a couple of them with you because they relate to Dr. Bob, and, and Dr. Bob is very special to you. Three years ago, I was in Akron. I went to a meeting, and after the meeting, I asked an old-timer, I said, is there any kind of a map that can kind of point me to some of the places I'd like to visit, like the, the Mayflower Hotel where Bill made the call and, and the hospital where he, he and Dr. Bob used to work with alcoholics and King's School where the first public meeting was and Dr. Bob's house? And, and he said, no, I don't think there is anything like that, but I'm retired and I'm one of the tour guides on Founders Day and I don't have anything to do tomorrow and I'll show you around. And he did. <laughs> and not only did he show me around Akron and we got to see all those wonderful places about the early days, 
He had a pigeon, someone he was sponsoring, who was two weeks sober, who didn't know anything about the program. Did he hold along with him? So I got to see this through my 15-year sober eyes and listen to someone who knew the history. And I also got to see it through the eyes <laughs> of uh, someone with two weeks sobriety. It was an incredible experience. And I'll share this with you, too. I, I met the nun at the hospital that took Sister Ignatius' place. And she found out that I knew something about alcoholism, that I was in AA, and that I'd worked professionally in the field. She took me aside and she says, you know, we're having a terrible time with the physicians on staff here. Could you talk to them? <laughs> they thought it never gets better, you know, even at the birthplace of this thing. The next morning, there was a terrible rainstorm in Akron, and with the camper that I was driving borrowed from a friend, I was afraid to drive, so... I went back and saw a couple of the places that we didn't get to go to on the tour before, and one of them was I wandered around the cemetery, and I actually found Bob Smith's grave. And I'm a Franciscan priest. St. Francis means a lot to me. I've been to Assisi. I've studied his life there. I've just gotten back from the Holy Land, a very special trip for me. I've been to Rome. In another area, uh, one of the things I love is the Grand Canyon. Recently, I had a two-hour helicopter flight with just one other person in the pilot over that area, over many of the trails that I've hiked. Those are some of the thrills, the high points in my life. But I'm not embarrassed at all to tell you that what the high point that outranks all of those is standing there in the rain by myself at Dr. Bob's grave. And what made it so special is a book called Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers. Of all the biographical literature that's written, it's probably the most folksy, disorganized piece. But there's a wonderful ending to that book. And it's when Bill Wilson visits the grave of Dr. Bob and sees the marker. And Bill is disillusioned. And here are the last lines of that book. Because I didn't find any grand monument. That's the second to the last line. The last line goes like this. No grand monument? Question mark. You and I are the monument. The memorial. To something so wonderful that it's never happened before. To give you, you've been sitting a long time. To give you a time frame, let's look at about ten more minutes at most. Another great piece of our literature right now that's out is a thing called Pass It On. And the best part about the whole book and reminiscence about the early days is the little paragraph in the beginning that tells how they picked the title for the book, <laughs> where some apparently a young lady in nine or ten months of sobriety realized she was at a, at a meeting with Bill Wilson, one of the co-founders, and she went rushing up to him after the meeting, and she said, I gushed all over him, thanking him for this program and saving my life. And he simply held my hand warmly and said, pass it on. You and I get to be part of something that is that wonderful, that goes beyond words. Again, I hope you think about the shame issue. Hope you learn more about it. <laughs> I hate to push books at things like this, but this is what shame face looks like. Hazelden has an 800 number. <laughs> I hope you read this thing. I hope you paint it yellow or some other color. I hope you're as impressed as I am. It's written anonymously by a lady named Stephanie. I don't know who Stephanie is, but I love her. 
He's got a great program and wonderful practical insights into the nature of shame and common sense program approaches to dealing with it so that we don't have to go around in sobriety with gritted, clenched teeth thinking that someone's going to find out that we really are rotten and no good and not worthwhile. I like to thank God for character defects. You know, the evidence is in. Haven't met anybody yet who had them all removed. And that means that you're a klutz in one way or another. And that's part of the beauty of the humor in AA because it deals with that klutziness. We have a step that says we become entirely ready and another one says that we ask to have them entirely removed. But that doesn't happen. Many of them are removed. (laughs) The point is you and I just don't get to choose which ones we keep. (laughs) But it's the very ones that God gives us and gifts us with. Whoever thought of a character defect as a gift? (laughs) That credentials us to the newcomers. Because they find out that there's somebody else klutzy too. But one who isn't drinking and one who's walking around loose. One who has that look in their eyes that lets people know that they have something that the suffering alcoholic wants. You know, all humor, the basis of humor is, is this klutziness, the imperfection, the fact that we're fallible. And that's what's so healing about the humor that we find in AA. I have a wonderful social worker friend that I have enormous regard for her. And and for six years, I tried to get that lady to go to an AA meeting or an Al-Anon meeting just to have some taste of what you and I know about because she doesn't have a clue. And I finally blackmailed her into it. And I said, great, I'll take you to a meeting. She says, no, no, let me just tell me where a good one is and I'll go. I'll go by myself. I thought that was a pretty good idea. And I told her where a good meeting was. And for three months, I kept waiting for her to call to tell me how wonderful it was. (laughs) She never called. And I finally saw her, and I said, by the way, did you ever go to that meeting? She said, oh, yeah. Yeah, thanks. I was devastated. (laughs) said, "Uh, how'd you like it? She said, well, it was okay. At this point, I'm speechless. When I got my voice back, I said, well, what'd you think of it? She said, well, I really didn't think too much. I said, well, well, what happened? She said, well, there were a whole bunch of people who drank too much coffee and smoked too many cigarettes that sat around this table and told horror stories and laughed. <laughs> then they ate some cake and went home. <laughs> now, I'm sure that's happened. But you and I know that something else happened, too. And I do feel sad that she wasn't able to see that or, or know what it was. Uh, let, let me get back to the humor thing. Humor, to be humor, sneaks up on you. Uh, and the joke that I can think of this morning is kind of ethnic, but you'll forgive me for that. These two guys walking down the street. One of them says, the other, I got this great Polish joke for you. And the other guy says, I don't want to hear it. He says, yeah, but you're the only Polish person I've ever known. You're the only Polak who I've ever been able to tell these stories to. And, and he didn't get upset. He said, yeah, but I ran out of that. I, you overdid it. I've heard too many Polish stories. I'm just filled up to hear with them. That's why I'm not Polish anymore. He says, what do you mean you're not Polish anymore? He says, well, I've changed my nationality. I'm Italian. He says, you can't do that. He says, well, I did. I'll prove it to you. Watch. Follow me. So he goes into a store, goes up to the clerk, he says, buongiorno, I'd like to buy some zita, some sausage. I'm going to have some friends over, make some ravioli. The clerk looks at him right in the eye and points his finger out and says, fellow, you're Polish. He says, what do you mean I'm a Polish? I'm Italian. 
He says, now, fellow, you're Polish. He says, what's the matter? You don't like the accent? He says, fellow, the accent's terrific. This is a hardware store. <laughs> The title of my uh, talk on the program this morning was Wherever You Are, Be There. I hope you take that with you. That's one of the great gifts the program has given to me. I've never been where I was. I've always been somewhere else. Most of the time talking about the past or daydreaming about the future and stumbling through today. And as a result of people like you and the experience that you've shared with me and the faith that you've shared with me, I've discovered that I am in the place where God shines through. For he and I are one, not two. I need not fret, nor fear, nor plan. He wants me where and as I am. And if I be relaxed and free, he'll carry out his plan through me. Alcoholics Anonymous, Al-Anon, ACA, work. Being rigid perfectionists, <laughs> we have to watch about being fanatical. If you read the literature, you'll find out that Bill Wilson was delighted that anyone was sober, regardless of how they got sober. One quick story about that. When I first sobered up, I realized Bill Wilson was still alive, and I wanted to meet him, and I chased him all over the East, and we never got together. And today I'm glad, because now I know why I wanted to do it. I wanted to stand up in front of people like you sometime, like today, and say, when Bill and I talked. <laughs> We never got to talk, but one day I was driving by the Alano Club in Scottsdale, and, and there was this enormous crowd around there at noon, and I thought, wow, something special is going on. I think I'll drop in. And there's something special was going on. They had a speaker at the noon meeting, and usually that's a discussion thing, and he was doing question and answers, like some kind of authority or something. And I figured, what the heck's going on here? And I found out his name was Clarence, and he was one of the original hundred. He started things in Cleveland, and uh, he's a real character. He passed away, didn't he, I think, recently? Uh, anyway, Clarence is saying all kinds of things that I didn't know. You see, I'd never read the history of how we got here because it's full of controversy, and I didn't want to know that. I wanted to believe that somehow one day a cloud opened up and this big blue book descended. <laughs> but Clarence talked about that thing. Someone asked him something about unity, and he said, the only unity that I've known in Alcoholics Anonymous as long as I've been around is that people fight. <laughs> And they care enough to fight about issues like whether we should let addicts in or not. We used to fight about whether we should let young people in or not, or women. He says, you better have an opinion on those issues, and you better be willing to fight, even with your sponsor. I didn't want to hear that, but I knew it was true. And then he talked about the Oxford Movement. And to be a member of the Oxford Movement in the early days, you had to qualify in two categories. You had to not be a Roman Catholic, and you had to be an admitted public sinner. Well, being a drunkard, God took care of the sin part. Uh, and Clarence knew to be sober, he had to help other people and carry the message. And he had dismal failure with that for six or eight months. But everyone that, that he started to help happened to be Roman Catholic. And Clarence didn't figure that out. He didn't like it, but that's the way it worked out. And he couldn't take those guys to the meetings. So one night he announced to his group, I'm going to start a new meeting. And anybody's welcome, regardless of religion. And someone in the original group promised to show up and punch him out. That's where we come from. <laughs> and Clarence said, uh, I don't know what we're going to call it. He said, we'll probably call it Alcoholics Anonymous. The group didn't even have a name at that time. didn't have an identity. And Clarence did that. 
and I'll be forever grateful that I did. I didn't shake hands with Bill Wilson, but I shook hands with the guy that let the Catholics in. Saying <laughs> I'm alive here to tell about that today. Clarence was a character, and so was Bill, and so was Bob. And I don't know if I can arrange this because I don't know about her health, but I do a lot of retreats and evenings of renewals. And the place where I live in Arizona is a very popular place. We have a lot of people who come there for classes and masses. And there's an older woman who I've known for years who one day just happened to mention that she was from Akron. And that's when I got back from the Akron trip. And I said, oh, terrific, i just been to Akron. It's the greatest place in the world. And here's why. And she says, I know. You remember my husband, Art? I said, yeah. Did you ever know what he did for a living? And I said, no. She says, he was a physician. And when Dr. Bob was too drunk to practice medicine, we used to take care of him. And I haven't met Dr. Bob, but I met the wife of the physician who he practiced with many times when he was not allowed to practice in the hospital. Perhaps I can get her to meet you in the future. She's a grand lady and has a lot of wonderful stories. I think the main thing she told me about Bob is that he was a wonderful, warm person, drunk or sober. Anyway, all things have to come to an end, but really anything that has to do with program is just a beginning. I'd like to end with some words. I'm kind of an amateur author, and I want to write a poem, which I don't have finished yet, but I've taken a couple of ideas from a couple of different places, and, and here's the basic idea, and maybe I'll round it out someday, or maybe you will, or someone else. I'm sure you know what I mean. I used to live in a little locked box. And the little locked box was me. And it was lined with mirrors. So that no matter where I looked, I was all that I could see. And then I met people like you. And the mirrors turned into windows. God bless you all. I hope you know you're loved.